0: Weird around the midsection, and then bottom half is like a thousand snakes for a butt. It's always snakes. It's always snakes. It's always snakes. Yeah, the ancient Greeks loved putting snakes on people's butts. <laughs>
1: good. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Newest Olympian. My name is Mike Schubert. I'm the titular Newest Olympian. I'm a 30-year-old man who never read the Percy Jackson books as a kid, but I'm reading them now for the first time as an adult because I'm on a quest to determine if this is a book series that we've all been sleeping on. I'm not on this quest alone, though. I am joined today by a very special guest. It is Red from Overly Sarcastic Productions, who you might know from YouTube. Red, how's it going?
0: Hello. Things are going pretty good. I'm excited to talk about this book series because they held a special place in my heart, uh... Uh, when I was but a young teen, then I sort of fell off the wagon and now revisiting it again, I'm like, oh no, I was onto something with these. These were good.
1: (laughs) They're very good. I would love to get right into it. How did you come across the books? What was your story of becoming a fan of
0: the series, et cetera? Yeah, I wish I could remember the first place I ran into the books because I feel like it was either like a middle school book fair, like very late middle school Mm -hmm, or like mm -hmm. early high school in the library or something like that, because it was one of those things where I don't even remember how I got them, because I clicked with them so hard. They were so fun. You know what? We can pinpoint the year. I don't have it on hand, but uh, when I got into it, there were only the first three books out, I want to say.
1: So that'd be like 2008,
0: 2007-ish? Yeesh. I guess I was like really little, Um, like 11. (laughs) But you know what? I actually think that possibly I got the Titan's Curse when it dropped, because I had assumed the series was a trilogy. And when the Titan's Curse ended on such an open-ended thing, I was like, wait, there's gonna be more. I was hooked. I had it bad. Oh, cool! And before I read the Percy Jackson books, I you know I was that kid. I had the Dolores Book of Greek Myths. Classic. Covered classic. In I thought it was so fun, so cool. And I tried and failed to read some it because I was a kid, so it was really Ooh. boring. Then the funny thing is, in the middle of this is when the channel that I made sort of started building up, and it wasn't initially at all about myths, but it sort of drifted to being about that. And uh, for a while, there was a running gag with my audience that I didn't like these books huh. <laughs> because of a quip I had in a video it was the Iliad video, actually, because the translation that I had, it was one of the tellings where they assigned the Roman names to all the Greek gods. Uh, what had just happened okay. is they just started putting out the Percy Jackson like sequel series. Like, yeah, the,
1: the Heroes of Olympus books.
0: Heroes of Olympus, exactly, where it's about the Roman gods. And there's like specific plot points about how, oh, you think these are just like the Greek gods, but there's actually key differences, like they're different personalities. And I was like, this is so confusing. So I had like a one-liner. Where I was like, this is more confusing than those stupid Percy Jackson books. And everyone got on my ass about it. And I was like, no, guys, I it, it, it's loving. I like these books. <laughs> that's why I'm complaining about them. Wait. <laughs> so fortunately, that died down because I was like, no, guys, I really do. I really do <laughs> like these books. But for a while, anytime we did a and a people were like, what does Red have against the Prince Jackson books? And I'm like, nothing, I swear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's great. It's something that I think is a disconnect that sometimes people don't understand. I ran into this when I was covering the Harry Potter books for Potterless. Mm. When you criticize a series like this, especially if it's in the aura of wanting them to be better, it's because you like them. If there's something that I genuinely hate, I'm not going to waste brain space, oxygen, the muscle moving of my mouth and tongue and jaw in order to talk about (laughs) something that I hate. I'm not going to go on and talk for hours about crypto because it's just bad and it's just a waste of everyone's time and the Earth's oxygen supply. If you hate a thing, you just don't talk about it. If you love a thing, that's when you have the constructive criticism. But I can see how people maybe lost that context if you called them those
0: stupid Stupid, Percy Jackson. Yeah, (laughs) in hindsight, a very poor way for me to frame it. It was very fun, though. And, like, also at the time, like, I was so into the Percy Jackson books, you know, books run through five. And then when the Heroes of Olympus started, I sort of hit this point where I was like, I kind of like this, but I really wish they would just give Percy a break. You know, like, that's, I reached a certain point where I was like, I'm getting diminishing returns from these <laughs> adventures. I just want him to take a nap and go to college and be fine. Mm-hmm. And I sort of ended up falling off the wagon the more expansive the world's got like there was that brief foray into like the Egyptian gods I was like this is different mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm, I'm good though mm-hmm. so I'd sort of reached this point where I was like I don't know if I've outgrown this series or if it's just moving in directions where I'm not like super into it anymore and having revisited Battle for the Labyrinth for this I'm like no no I just, it was just moving in a direction I didn't like I still love these books they still yes, slap yes. which is it's fun that's a nice thing to feel about something that was you know so fun and important to me when I was younger is like oh that actually was good I did have taste great
1: <laughs> yes anytime I watch an old movie that I really enjoyed and it still holds up like this was the case I loved School of Rock a lot the Mm. film it's still in my top five and it was one of those things where for the longest time I was like oh this is me just being silly putting it in the top five and then I listened to Brett Goldstein's movie podcast Mm. the guy who plays Roy Kent and Ted Lasso and he is a very well-versed film connoisseur and he has interviews with all these very accomplished actors and stuff and many people are like oh yeah school of rock is just one of the greatest films of all time and i've never felt more retroactively (laughs) vindicated
0: (laughs) yeah i know It's always fun, especially like when you hear it from someone who really knows what's up. You're like, oh, Mm -hmm. yes, I'm right. Yes. Mm -hmm. So It's really,
1: really good. It's so fun. So I'm very excited to talk about these chapters with you. I'm excited to get some mythological insight as well, because if anyone is unfamiliar with your channel and what you specifically do on your channel, you are certainly more of the myth person for the red and blue dynamic of overly sarcastic (laughs) productions. So we will have some myth stuff coming up, which is important here because we've got a lot of interesting figures that I know nothing about because the closest I got to knowing anything about mythology is taking Latin in high school. So Mm. other than that, I'm uh, an open book ready to learn more though at the <laughs> end of something because I think we're going to get the rest of chapter 7 and part of chapter 8 I unfortunately did know one thing and it just makes that dream in chapter 8
0: really sad yeah that well that's fun because one of the things that's very clear in these books is that Rearudan sort of expects his readers and his characters to have a certain like base level pop culture understanding of mm-hmm. various key events in Greek mythology like oh yeah you know the big gods you know Zeus Poseidon Hades those other ones and sometimes <laughs> person will be like hold on wait there was something about this what was it Heracles did something it was something but I don't remember what because I don't pay attention in class because I have ADHD (laughs) it's like yeah okay and then like the thing with Riordan is he does a lot of deep pulls but then he's very aware that they're deep pulls so he always has the characters who are like they don't really know what's up like Annabeth probably knows all this stuff but Mm -hmm. like Percy why would he know? He's 12. Well, he's like 15 in this book, but he's 12, you know. Yeah. <laughs> On some level he's always 12. And uh, the funny thing is of course I read these books before I was this into mythology. Like I had the sort of, not like the base level stuff, but like the, when you're a kid and you're a nerd about this stuff, you know the Icarus myth, you know the basic stuff about the Iliad, the Odyssey, you, you know some of the big ones. Mm-hmm. But as I read through the books and then came back to them with more knowledge, I was like, oh, a lot of the things that I thought were like cool, fun, creative writing decisions from Reardon were literally plot for plot taken from the Odyssey. <laughs> like a lot of these fun bits are just that's literally what happened but like here now and i I was like i really like this but also like i feel like i can't give you as much credit as i was before (laughs) i don't know (laughs) some of that is is the case in what we're about to cover here because there's some fun remixing he does with some ideas especially later so we might might not get to it but Mm -hmm. there was something in chapter eight where i was like this is neat there's like four different things that are coming together here
1: well let's get into it let's see how much we can cover so where we last left our heroes they had just come upon briaris am i even pronouncing that one right here's a good question question off the start. Uh,
0: I think that's about as close as I'd be getting anyway. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) So
1: they've just come upon Briaris, who is looking quite sad in his cell. Percy gave him a sick burn of saying either the sky isn't as tall as it used to be or he's short. And that is where we pick up. So Tyson falls to his knees. He calls Briaris by name and he asks for his help. Briaris looks up with a long and sad face and deep brown, all brown, no people going on, just straight brown eyes. And Briaris warns Tyson to run while he can, adding that he can't help them because he can't even help himself. Mm-hmm. So he's seeming quite sad at this moment.
0: Yeah. Super bummed. Did you discuss in the last episode what exactly Briares is?
1: Nothing more than what the book tells you. So any other insight to him and all of his hundreds of arms?
0: Well, that's basically—this is another case where what Riordan puts in the book is pretty much all we have. The Hecatoncheires, uh, the hundred-handed ones, are the offspring of Oranos and Gaia. They helped Zeus and the Olympians in the plot of the Titanomachy, so they sided with the gods against their parents, the Titans. The Cyclopses are then imprisoned in Tartarus again because they're kind of jerks, but it kind of depends. And the Hecatoncheires are just kind of, they never appear again. They just aren't discussed. Briaris is like the Hecatoncheire that's like the better known one. The other two come up briefly, but Briaris, like in the Theogony, uh, he marries one of Poseidon's daughters as like a reward oh, for helping the gods. Yeah, which is certainly something that Reardon would have known because implicit in the structuring he has of Briaris in this is that like, Briaris is the better-known one. You know, he's sort of the bigger name. Mm-hmm. The gods liked him more, perhaps, but that's not really helping him now as things gotcha. have sort of reset to where they were before the Titanomachy.
1: Okay, cool. Love the insight. Yeah. So Tyson is really trying to hype up Briaris, insisting that he can do anything because he is a hundred-handed one. Now, there's a lots of hands doing different things at once here. Some are wiping Briaris' nose. Some are assembling a toy boat out of scraps. Others are disassembling this toy boat. And then others are playing rock paper scissors, and then some more are making shadow puppets, which just quite the vibe going on here with Briaris, a complex person.
0: He's got a lot going on. And the way that Reardon sort of makes sense of his physicality is impressive because structurally speaking, these things make no sense. Because, mm-hmm. oh, you've got 100 arms and 50 faces. Explain to me what that looks like, quickly. <laughs> and uh, it's tough. I think I had to draw these guys once, and I was like, he basically looks like a potato with legs and like, just don't look too close. It's horrifying. But Reardon <laughs> did something kind of clever with the 50 faces thing where it's like, he only has one face at a time, but they yes. swap out when he feels different ways I was like, that's so much more efficient. Like, the arm situation is still very unsettling, but this at least I like.
1: Yeah, it definitely makes a lot of sense, and it makes me think of those action figures I had where they had different heads and they can go into the torso depending on what form the Transformer or (laughs) the Power Ranger Megazord is in. Yeah, Yeah, good stuff. So Briari says that he cannot help. Tyson encourages him to put on his brave face, and then Briari's face changes to have a completely different look, but it's more like someone trying to be brave, and then it returns to what it was, a sad forlorn face Briari says that it's no use and his scared face just keeps coming back Percy asks how he did that, and Annabeth elbows him for being rude, saying that the hundred-handed ones all have 50 different faces, and I love that Annabeth is so smart that she thinks that Percy has to know this. Like, (laughs) come on, Percy. To the point where she thinks it's rude that he just doesn't understand how this creature, a type of creature he has never met before, and couldn't even come close to pronouncing the name of. She assumes. Obviously, Percy knows this guy has 50 faces. That's so rude of him to ask how he does this.
0: Annabeth is a character that i Projected onto a lot when I was little. Uh, and then it's like, oh, let me see. Oh, she's she's a very smart girl who's a bit unsociable on account of that, and she knows way too much and assumes everybody else. Okay, yeah, okay, cool. I'll just go <laughs> bury myself. Fine. It's fine. But um it's fun. Like, as far as the writing of this is concerned, it's very convenient to have Annabeth around because she knows all the stuff that Percy doesn't. So When Reardon needs to explain stuff, Percy's like, I don't know what that is. And Annabeth is like, Oh, well, obviously, the entire text of the, you know, Ovid's Metamorphoses, the Theogony. It's like, Oh, perfect, perfect. This is extremely useful.
1: What I appreciate is that for this structure, as opposed to some other YA series where you just have one person who answers all of the questions, I feel like Grover, Tyson, and Annabeth kind of evenly distribute giving information to Percy slash the reader that (laughs) he slash we don't know. And it makes it feel more believable that Tyson is able to answer some stuff, Annabeth is able to answer some stuff, Grover is able to answer some stuff, as opposed to just the one friend who is a walking encyclopedia, I think it works quite well for the series.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I like that essentially it's subdivided, so Annabeth has done all the research, because that's her deal, but then right. it's like Tyson has lived a lot of this, Grover's lived a different slice of this, so you know, if it's nature involved or monster you can have Grover and Tyson weigh in, and if it's basically, oh, what heroic adventure are we calling back to today, you get Annabeth, <laughs> exactly. which is great. It's smart, it makes all the characters feel a lot more fleshed out, and the fact that Annabeth doesn't just be like, well, as we know, he's a hecatonker, he's a hundred-handed woman with 50 faces. Instead, Mm -hmm. she just elbows him because he's being rude and then later explains like, hey, don't do that. Right. Which, again, makes her feel like a real person. Just... The writing's good. I like it.
1: <laughs> it is very good. Yeah, I think that's a skill of Rick's, is that it feels believable as a person, the character, as opposed to just, let me just information dump for the next three paragraphs. Like, it comes across in a way that human beings would interact with each other.
0: Yes. Allow me to explain you a thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, Percy, with what is an attempt at a cool zinger, but... Kind of falls flat. Must make it hard to get a yearbook picture in response to the 50 faces. And look, I love Percy's quips. They can't all be bangers. Not everyone Mm. is going to land. And this one, I don't know if he stuck the landing.
0: No, he didn't. But that's okay. (laughs) They can't all be winners.
1: Yeah. Tyson tells Briaris that they can help him. And he asks for his autograph, which Briaris asks if Tyson has 100 pens. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Grover gets them back on track, reminding them that campy, is it campy, Campe? I don't know how to do E with a carrot on top of it.
0: I think it's Campe. That's the vibe I got. Okay. But yeah, again, asking me for correct pronunciations is, uh, <laughs> A losing battle.
1: <laughs> it's all good. I will go with yeah. Camp A. Someone can email me with a correct pronunciation. But I am not an ancient Greek. So Groover gets them on track by reminding them that Campe will eventually return. Annabeth instructs Tyson to break the bars to get Briaris out of there. And that has Tyson very excited. And earlier, I tried to predict what would happen in this chapter, as I do for every chapter, and I just on a whim wrote, either our team is going to get captured and they'll have to break free or they'll come across someone else and then they'll break them free. So it's very (laughs) funny that by having two separate guesses, I have correctly guessed (laughs) both things that happen in the chapter.
0: Admittedly, it's the Percy Jackson series. It's kind of a cold read, like our heroes will be captured at some point and then heroically escape. It's like, oh, is it Tuesday already?
1: <laughs> and usually, oh, did something good happen in this chapter or something bad is happening in this chapter? <laughs> no, Don't get comfy, kiddo. I feel like that would be a fun chart to do is just some sort of graph of do two chapters of good things ever happen back to back? And I'm pretty
0: sure the answer is no. No, I'm not even sure you ever get a full chapter of good things happening. <laughs>
1: And if it is, it's one of the ones that's only, like, four pages long.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like, we had a nice birthday party, and I ate blue pancakes, and everything was great. And then, bad news, whoopsies, prophecies of doom, uh, volcanoes erupting. Chapter six,
1: a new monster wants to decapitate me. Yeah, oh, okay, we're yeah. back on track. Ah, oh, there
0: we go, there we go, thank goodness. <laughs> Honestly, though, like, shout out to Reardon for, like, not burying the lead on that. He's like, it sucks to be a half-blood. Being mm-hmm. a half-blood is miserable. Here's proof. And also, all the chapter titles being, like... Now, it's probably not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> I set myself on fire. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's probably fine. Yeah,
1: from page one, Percy says it's bad. So Tyson says that Briaris can do it and he can do anything because he is stronger than Cyclopes and Briaris whimpers and 12 of his hands start playing patty cake instead of breaking free. And this at this point felt very Buzz Lightyear when his arm gets removed in Toy Story. <laughs> this is very I'm Mrs. Nesbitt dejected, tossing the arm around. This is the vibe I'm getting from Briaris right now. Minus
0: Academy training wasted.
1: <laughs> Classic. The whole galaxy. Yeah. yeah. So Percy asks if Briaris is so strong, why is he in prison? And Annabeth scolds him for being rude again, this time completely valid because this is just straight up rude of Percy (laughs) to ask. Yeah. She explains that Campe imprisoned him for thousands of years in Tartarus, leaving him terrified. And yeah, if I was in prison for a thousand years, I don't know that I would be really up and at him to leave once some kids come around to break me free.
0: Yeah, so Campe is interesting. She's referenced very Infrequently, she's one of the monsters that is killed by Zeus in the Titanomachy in order to free the imprisoned Cyclopses and the Hecatoncheires that are trapped in Tartarus and guarded by her. So this is a case where Riordan just took that and put it here, and nothing is different. Tartarus <laughs> is an Alcatraz now. Don't worry about it. There's a poet named Nonus gives the only detailed physical description of her, which is pretty much verbatim how Riordan describes her, up to and including the sort of fluid, changing, like animal heads,
1: stomach of doom.
0: Yeah, just the, that weird stuff. Uh, she's also described very similarly to. Typhon, although weirdo uh-huh. doesn't point this out, because Typhon is um, top half kind of a dude, but very snaky and, and often with wings and weird around the midsection, and then bottom half is like a thousand snakes for a butt. It's
1: always snakes. It's always snakes. It's
0: always snakes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ancient Greece loved putting snakes on people's butts. She's also described as an earth-born monster, which typically means one of the monstrous offspring of Gaia, who had a tendency of just farting out snaky monsters on a whim. Oh, no! Yeah, so... <laughs> It's funny, like the, the image of Gaia is often like, oh, she's Mother Nature. She's a well-loving presence. She was not on the God side for most of Greek mythology. She was like, stop murdering my kids.
1: I feel like I have to readjust my Gaia knowledge because for me, it's mostly in the forms of Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Captain Planet. yep. And then later on Horizon Zero Dawn, where she's a really nice AI robot lady. Yep. So, yeah, for her to be... Farting out snake monsters, as you (laughs) said, a very different vibe than my understanding of Gaia.
0: Yep. Well, I mean, she is the source of all life, but also a lot of that life is really gross. So, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, that'll do it. So Tyson asks Briaris what is wrong and asks. Briaris to show his strength and break the bars. Annabeth says, Tyson, look, you're going to have to break the bars. And he reluctantly agrees. Tyson does. And then Annabeth tells Briaris to join them. And she reaches out a hand and Briaris's face becomes very hopeful. And a bunch of his hands reach out, but twice as many swat those hands away. And he says he cannot leave for she referencing Campe, will punish him. Annabeth assures him that everything's going to be okay, because he fought the Titans before and he won. She asks if he remembers that, and he says he remembers the war, but he also recalls that the Titans almost won, and they've been getting stronger, according to Campe. So, not ideal. Percy tells him to listen to her, Annabeth, and calls for him to come with them. But Briaris doesn't move. And Percy knows that Groover is right in that comp is coming back pretty soon. But he also knows that if they just leave Briaris behind, it'll absolutely crush Tyson. So what he does to speed along the process is what we all saw coming. He challenges Briaris to a game of rock, paper, scissors. Oh, yeah. Classic. (laughs) Like you do. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That's that heroic ingenuity we've come to expect from Perseus Jackson.
1: (laughs) Of course, of course. It's always been in all of the stories of every Greek hero. This is how they do it. The stakes are that if Percy wins, Briaris will join. And if Percy loses, Briaris can stay. And then they go on to play. They throw. I'm assuming they do the only correct way of rock, paper, scissors, which is rock, paper, scissors shoot. Shoot, of course. Any other way. I don't understand that. Narrator Percy says, quote, he came up with a whole avalanche of rock a classroom set of scissors and enough paper to make a fleet of airplanes and my thought here was okay The classroom thing makes sense for scissors. The airplanes make sense for the paper are avalanches not made out of snow? Are avalanches actually rock slides underneath snow and then snow comes with it? I Mm. realized I don't know that much about avalanches.
0: No, avalanches are typically snow. I hadn't really thought of that because it's like, I think the problem is if he'd said a rock slide of rocks, it's like, well, that's redundant, Mr. Reardon. Avalanche (laughs) of rocks at least kind of feels right. But if you stop and think about it, you're like, uh... Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> Me scoozy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I guess this is Stop and Think About It, the podcast. Oh, yeah. But True. I also did recently learn I was just on vacation recently in New Zealand and I learned that tree avalanches are a thing Ooh. because. In some places, we were in the Doubtful Sound, which is this big valley carved out of a glacier, and they have these big rock formations. And the only way that trees can grow on these rocks is that moss grows on the trees, and then that retains enough moisture where a tree can go and have roots. So you'll just have trees sticking out of the side of a cliff, basically. But then eventually, sometimes, that moss will either give out or, for whatever reason, fall off the rock. And then you have an avalanche of trees, which is just the most down-under thing I could hear possible
0: (laughs) the one thing I can rely on trees to do is stand still most of the time
1: (laughs) not down here different rules oh boy (laughs) so Percy throws a gun and says that that beats everything and Uh, he says he's learned this from Paul and before I was kind of going back and forth of thinking maybe Paul Blowfist is not A nice guy because I found (laughs) it awfully suspicious that he was in charge of this school that had Kelly and Tammy being there and being prominent figures. And it feels like they would have to have the greatest method acting of all time for him to think that they are just cheerleaders the whole time. So that was a little suspicious. The fact that he has taught Percy that throwing a gun in rock, paper, scissors is legit <laughs> makes me all in on Paul being a villain. I just can't <laughs> see that being something you teach someone. It's not good. I don't like it. No one ever likes the, eh, I threw a gun. It beats everything. It's terrible. It's also not true because you could totally break a gun with a rock. If you had strong enough scissors, you could cut off, you know, at least like the, trigger or like the hand and then paper can also defeat guns if it's in the form of proper legislation so i don't think a gun beats everything in rock paper scissors
0: you can also defeat a gun with paper uh, if it's in the form of a uh, dual monsters trading card as we've all seen uh-huh. when seto kaiba uh, stops a gun from firing by putting a, a card in it and then punches out the guy for ruining the card with the hammer of the we've all seen this this is a universal experience I not i'm not that, weird
1: <laughs> <laughs> look there's at least a subset of people either driving their cars right now or washing their dishes that are screaming in joy for this reference <laughs> So you have made uh, a certain subset of the listenership quite happy. That's
0: me. I'm here for the Yu-Gi-Oh! fans among us. Um, oh, it's a Yu-Gi-Oh! reference.
1: All right. All yeah, right.
0: Yeah. Of, you know what? It's fine. We don't need to get farther down the rabbit at all. I
1: was unfortunately right in the wrong age group of the funny thing in middle school slash oh. grade school where I was in fourth grade, I think, when Yu-Gi-Oh! really started to come out on the scene. Mm. And my era was like, look, we're playing Pokemon. We'll get yellow version. We're not sure about these new versions of Pokemon we're definitely not playing Yu-Gi-Oh that's for third graders
0: (laughs) oh I see that's yeah I was in the age bracket I'm about four years younger than you so I was in the age bracket where there were the Pokemon kids and the Yu-Gi-Oh kids and a Mm -hmm, lot of them mm -hmm. just had like huge bins of just all the cards mixed together because like they weren't playing the games they were collecting the cards of course Uh, of course but yes uh, gun does not beat everything but it's really funny to me the suspicion about Paul because it's like that really is just the MO of the Percy Jackson series like you're not allowed to have nice things oh your potential future stepdad might actually be just an okay normal dude what's the catch
1: that's honestly like right now i'm suspicious of paul i'm suspicious of juniper and i was (laughs) suspicious of Hera before the Hera reveal because she gave them food and i was like look anytime someone gives them food or drink it usually is bad medusa cersei it like (laughs) it's not a good idea
0: never goes well you can't trust ladies giving you snacks
1: (laughs) oh i would be so bad in the percy jackson universe i love snacks a lot i would be (laughs) so dead so quickly it wouldn't be good. I'd be a dead guinea pig. It, would, well, it wouldn't would be. Or I guess a dead guinea pig statue. It'd be But terrible. you would have
0: been a well-fed guinea pig statue. Mm-hmm. So... Would have been worth it. At
1: least my obituary could say he died doing what he loved, accepting food from strangers.
0: I mean, I figure like the fact that being a half-blood is so deadly means that they got to weed out a lot of the ones that just aren't going to make it like early, (laughs) (laughs) you know?
1: I'm happy to be a part of the weed out
0: process. This is funny because when I first read these books, I was like, it makes perfect sense that the main character is 12 years old. And now looking at it, I'm like, "Mm, (laughs) none of this should be allowed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's always (laughs) the thing with YA novels is trying to think of the major decisions that I had to make at age 12, which Mm were were not hard ever, you know?
0: I mean, at 12, it's like, yeah, I probably could have gotten mad enough to kill a minotaur with my bare hands. And, you know, now mid-20s, I'm like, ah... Maybe, but I shouldn't have had to kill a Minotaur with my bare hands. You know, like there's been some serious parental failings going on, (laughs) which is of course like the overarching plot point is like the gods sire kids with superpowers and a big target on their backs and their mortal parents can only do so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, Good luck, kiddos. And then it's like, okay, of all the people here who could actually solve this problem, why are the only people who could do that not doing anything? (laughs) Because of the rules. So
1: Brary says that it's not fair for Percy to throw a gun, which is correct. And Percy says that Campe won't play fair, so who cares? Rare L from Percy Jackson here. I care. <laughs> Rules are important. You can't just yada yada over the structure of important games such as Rock, Paper, Scissors. Where is your integrity, Percy Jackson?
0: It's nice of you to be speaking what Annabeth is clearly thinking this entire scene. <laughs> like, she's too smart to actually sabotage this clever plan, but she's so mad on the inside. Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. You know, Percy's very much in. It's not the journey, it's the destination. And Annabeth is upset, but <laughs> she also understands eyes on the prize.
0: is like... The sanctity of rock, paper, scissors completely falls apart once you can just start making things up. <laughs> but it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Everything's cool.
1: <laughs> so they're about to descend and return to the labyrinth entrance. But then Campe is at the bottom of the stairs, snarling. So they 180 and Briaris now gladly joins them. And he's flailing all of his arms while running, which is just a beautiful visual. Yeah. They bust out into the prison yard, and it's filled with tourists. San Francisco itself looks clear, but Mount Tam, which they can see in the distance, is very dark and stormy. And Annabeth notes that it looks even worse than it did when she was there. So tough situation, especially because she was there not too long ago.
0: It's cool that constant escalating stakes are just kind of the norm of this series. Is like, oh, the Titans are rising and the gods are useless and everything's getting worse, but also I don't know if Annabeth likes me. <laughs> 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 it's rough being 15. <laughs> We've all been there, kiddo.
1: We have all been there. So, Campe is approaching. Percy says that she's too big to fit through the doors, and then, of course, narrator Percy follows up this line with, then the wall exploded, which, ugh. <laughs> uh, the comedic timing that Rick employs with Percy versus narrator Percy contradicting himself is top notch stuff.
0: Yeah, it's funny. One of the things I actually noticed the first time I reread The Lightning Thief is how often he does that, where it's like there'll be like a block of dialogue, and then like whenever there's a, oh no, that's bad, it's always in its own separate line, like the a one use par- of paragraph. So one line
1: breaks, oh, yeah. the line break usage is so good. It's, it's very so good. fun.
0: I mean, I, I'm sure it's come up before, but um, the fact that this absolutely perfect screenplay got turned into the worst duo of movies ever made, I mean, adaptation-wise. It's like, <sighs> you had a gold mine and you paved it over and tried to turn it into a Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: anyway. that's great. I Thanks. have not seen the films yet. I will Whoa. after I read all the books. So it is approaching. But I have read the angry letters slash emails that Rick wrote yes. to Chris Columbus, who is yes. actively screwing it up. And now it makes so much sense, because you're right, these books... Often when I'm reading them, I can perfectly envision how it's supposed to look. So for Rick to write these emails basically saying you are ruining this, it's right on a silver platter for you why are you doing this yeah it makes sense you're totally right
0: i mean there's a reason why i'm hopeful about the series they're going to be trying to do is like you know Mm -hmm. if you just stick with the book you're going to get something workable it's like there's comic adaptations of these different books that i've read through and they're they're Mm -hmm. a little hit or miss but the ones that work the best are basically the ones that are like we're just going to treat the book like a storyboard and do what it says this looks like (laughs) it'll be fine
1: it shouldn't be that hard i'm glad rick is involved in the show it should be good yeah. So, narrator Percy describes the scene. Taurus screamed as Campe appeared from the dust and rubble, her wings spread out as wide as the yard. She was holding two swords, long bronze scimitars that glowed with a weird greenish aura, boiling wisps of vapor that smelled sour and hot even across the yard. Terrifying stuff. Intense stuff. Grover identifies this green aura as poison and he warns not to let it touch you. Percy guesses, uh yeah, because it'll kill you. And Grover <laughs> clarifies, well, you shrivel slowly to dust first, but yes, then you die, which is peak Grover.
0: <laughs> oh, Grover. Tyson
1: urges Briaris to fight and grow to full size. Briaris does nothing and then Campe approaches. Percy considers taking out Riptide and going at her, but Annabeth says what he's thinking, run. So they start running towards the wharf. Tourists are scared, and Percy wonders what they see through the mist, and that's what I was wondering this entire scene. I have no idea what they are seeing. Does it just look like there's an earthquake or something happening? That could be very on brand for San Francisco. Hmm. This is going high on my list of questions to ask Rick Riordan if I ever do get him on the pod.
0: Yes, good idea. I think it's interesting. There's sort of this undercurrent that I don't think is ever specifically described that like the mist is pretty good at covering up like simple low-level stuff but the titans and the sort of primordial earth monsters that are showing up are like so old and so vast that the mist doesn't really know what to do with them it's like <laughs> trying to cover it with the tarp and it's like well i can still kind of see that this godzilla so under that thing and i just i like that because it's this really efficient storytelling hint of like look, this is beyond them on a very real metaphysical level. This is bigger and more powerful than anything they're capable of doing. And here's the biggest hint. The magic fix everything blanket that keeps all the normies from knowing what's going on can't even figure out what to do with this. <laughs> and uh, I also like that he doesn't explain, like he doesn't have a tourist to be like, oh my God, that animatronic dinosaur is running wild or something like that. Uh, right, because right, it's right. like, it's the horror of the unknown. We don't know what they're seeing. It can't be worse than what's actually there, but it's probably still pretty bad.
1: What I appreciate is that for the times when Rick does the can't really describe this situation? It at least makes sense for the character of Percy or the narrator of Percy. Whereas in other books that I've read, recently I was rereading Harry Potter for a Potterless live show that I did. I was rereading the first book. And in the part of the first book where they go up and they bring the dragon to the top of the lookout tower, Harry as the pseudo narrator kind of, because it's not as direct, he basically says, how we got all the way up there and back, we had no idea. It's like, you were there. You definitely knew it. (laughs) At least in this story, this makes sense where Percy cannot see what the mortals are seeing, so his curiosity is valid. Sure, it's just a way for Rick not to have to describe something like you said, but it at least makes sense in the myth of how the story works, so I support it. I really don't like when other things are oh, it's so horrible that it's
0: indescribable.
1: Like, okay, author.
0: Yeah, all right, Lovecraft, (laughs) cool. But the other (laughs) thing that this cunningly does is make it very clear that like, hey, you know, we're we're underplaying it a little bit, but the entire world is at stake. Like, Mm -hmm. all the main characters are demigods, you know, they're always dealing with gods and monsters and stuff. So like, they know they're up to this. But like, If this goes wrong, like, the normal humans are going to be screwed over, too. Like, I'm just saying. That's a
1: really good point. That's something I didn't think about. But, yeah, by leaving the labyrinth for a bit and having mortals be in danger, you realize, right, it's not just Camp Half-Blood. It's not just the Olympians. It's the whole world, everyone included.
0: Mm -hmm. The fact is, like... Percy Jackson, as a franchise, has this very interesting thing of, like, the main characters are all these, like, super-powered beings, but there's very little focus on, like, and they must use these abilities to protect humanity, because it <laughs> says, like, they're 12, they must use these abilities to stay alive, <laughs> which is good, but having these little moments of heroism is, is fun. And this kind of ties into, I don't want to derail too far, but, like, sure. one of the things that I actually quite liked about the Heroes of Olympus series is that the narrator POV character is not Percy, and that part I wasn't a huge fan of, because being inside Percy's head is so fun. But this did mean that we got to see other people people's perspectives on Percy. And from everyone else's perspective, Percy is the coolest person alive. He's so so powerful. He's got a sword. He's incredibly strong. He's done all these legendary godlike things. But of course, whenever we're inside Percy's head, he's just panicking nonstop and like the ADHD is going on overdrive. So he's like, oh God, everything's terrifying. Ooh, a hot dog stand. Okay, focus. (laughs) But like everyone else is like, that's Perseus Jackson, the coolest, handsomest demigod that ever lived. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, that's my boy. And I'm really proud. Uh And it's like the one thing I really liked about Heroes of Olympus is just that little bit of like, yeah, he is really cool, actually.
1: <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm excited to get to those books. So Grover asks if they should get in a boat. Tyson says that would be too slow. The only option is to go back into the maze. Annabeth says that they need a diversion. Tyson says that he will distract Campe, And Percy offers to help, but Tyson refuses because the poison only hurts Cyclopes. It doesn't actually kill them. So he tells Percy to go and he assures him that he will meet them inside. Percy doesn't like it, but he heads off with Annabeth and Grover, they each take a Briari's hand while Tyson charges at Compe with a pole like he's jousting. Tyson has already been one of my favorite characters, and he just continues to become cooler and cooler with each successive sentence written about him running at her and jousting her. Let's
0: go. Let's go. Tyson is the best. He's such a sweetheart and also an ass kicker, and we're so lucky to have him. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We are so uh, fortunate to be in his presence.
0: I'm glad that they only sort of had the Percy's a little bit jealous plot line be kind of like a sub thing in, uh, I want to say, Sea of Monsters. Yeah,
1: there's a little bit of, oh, is my awkward brother? I don't want to have to deal with him. And But very quickly becomes, I love this guy. Everybody can go kick rocks.
0: Right. But also, I thought that was great because, like, it started off as, like, it's kind of a forced character conflict. And then it's like, he's 13. He only just found out who his real dad is. And now he's finding out his real dad has a bunch of other kids who he seems to like more. And Percy doesn't <laughs> know how to reconcile that. And he's taking it out on Tyson, who also, like, you know, obviously they're all gods and monsters and demigods and stuff, but, like, there's a lot of often very purposeful coding for, like, real-world stuff. And you could easily read Tyson as potentially a quote-unquote low-functioning form of certain neurodivergences you know he doesn't he's mm-hmm. not very socially ept. percy being embarrassed by him in public is like okay yes yeah, get over yourself man and then as soon as he does he's like actually i love this guy he's great and everyone can fight me is like yes mm-hmm. get it kiddo
1: it's really good it's really good i like it a lot
0: it's handled quite well i think because Reardon went into this series specifically of the mind of like you know my kid with adhd and dyslexia needs books where he can see himself as the hero Let's do it. And so he's coming at this from a very sort of compassionate and careful perspective when it comes to representing the mindsets of different kinds of kids and and how they see the world and the difficulties they might face. And I think that's really good and impressive, but that's not the book we're talking about. I'm the one who has to focus now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. I love it. I love it a lot. So, back to this book Tyson takes Campe by surprise since she was locked in on Briaris. But after getting rammed into a wall by the pole, she slices it up with her swords and neutralizes this new pole threat. The fight continues with the narrator Percy noting that the last thing he sees is Tyson chucking a dip and dot stand. <laughs> At Compe. One, love the dip and dots reference. It's really dates this book solely in the late 2000s. But number two, the name drop of dip and dots, <laughs> the ice cream of the future. Before I was full time with this, I was an engineer and I worked for oh. a company that supplied the liquid nitrogen to dip dots. Really? And yeah, I never had any interaction with them. But when we were in the initial training, you know, the onboarding process, my boss was talking about the different companies you work with and he was like yeah you guys know Dippin Dots and ice cream of the future I guess ice cream of the past because this was in 2014 I was like oh dang shots
0: fired at Dippin Dots does Dippin Dots not still exist
1: I think they do but exclusively at minor league baseball parks like I think that is the only like every now and then I'll see them and every now and then my wife Kelly would be like oh should we get Dippin Dots if we're at you know a sporting event or something and they have them it's like no they're gonna cost eight dollars (laughs) they're not actually good it doesn't taste like ice cream just tastes like cold and there's not that much in it i've been anti-dippin dots from day one so i oh, was wow. very happy when my <laughs> boss threw shade at them it's just ice cream's already perfect why are we making it worse and then trying to rebrand it as being cool
0: that Dippin is the dots, problem come
1: fight me <laughs>
0: trying to improve on ice cream is it was always a losing battle but like i guess for me dip dots has this sort of like distant allure because like w- when i was you know little my family was the kind that was like it's not worth getting snacks at like you know out at the park or at the museum it's like you know we have food at home and it's yeah. so i yeah, yeah, never yeah, yeah. i like got dip and dots like twice in my life that that was when like you know like my aunt has taken me somewhere it's like yeah we can get dip and i'm like oh the next year of the gods. And it's like <laughs> yeah it's all right <laughs> tastes cocoa and then that's it yeah. but in my head it's like there could someday <laughs> someday there's the perfect form of dip because it's not like you can just get it at a grocery store so it's still kind of in this odd space of like Ah, uh, forbidden ambrosia. <laughs> someday. <laughs> someday I shall hold you in my arms.
1: <laughs> One day when I'm an adult, I'll have a freezer full of dipping Dots. Except you won't, because you need liquid nitrogen to make them. Anyway. Yeah, you
0: can't just buy Dippin' Dots by the court. You buy ice cream. <laughs> exactly. Anyway.
1: And it's way cheaper and better. Anyway, Percy Jackson. So, Briaris <laughs> is out of breath. He says he can't make it. Percy yells at him, saying that Tyson is risking his life for Briaris, so he will, in italics, make it. So the team gets closer to the door of the cell block, and Percy hears an angry roar. He turns, and he sees Tyson sprinting at them with Compe chasing after him covered in ice cream and also souvenir shirts. What a visual. <laughs> then we have this exchange. Annabeth says, hurry, and narrator Percy says, like I needed to be told that. <laughs> a plus, A plus.
0: Oh, it's tough. <laughs> they
1: arrive at the cell in which they entered, but the wall is completely solid now. Annabeth calls for them to look for the delta symbol. Grover is able to find it and the wall begins to open. Of course, to add suspense, it opens very slowly. Hmm. Percy pushes Briaris into the maze followed by Annabeth and Grover. He encourages Tyson to come along, but he doubts that Tyson can actually make it. So he searches around for some sort of distraction. And what he does is he turns his wristwatch into shield mode and he hurls it at Campe. It smacks her in the face and it gives Tyson just enough time to dive past Percy into the maze. Percy follows right after. Campe tries to get in, but the door closes just in time. The action scenes in this book never disappoint. Mm. I was heart-racingly reading this because, I don't know, I I could very much see someone getting stuck on the other side, especially because they went into this quest with an extra person, so Mm. I wasn't 100% ruling out Tyson getting left behind here. yeah So I was super nervous.
0: There is also the fact that, like, because, as we joshed about earlier, you know, people are constantly getting captured in these books. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, it wouldn't be unhurt Like, it's not a death sentence if somebody gets captured by the bad guys. It just sucks. Like, we've seen this before. Like, it wouldn't be good. It would be sad. We wouldn't want to happen but you know it's not enough of a game ender that the plot can't allow it to happen so there's like there's real plot danger of like this could happen and of course like you know we're a few books in people have died like demigods we've spent time with have gone out in heroic sacrifices before we're very well aware that it's a real threat in part because Reardon doesn't just like backload all the major character deaths like they can sort of just happen at any point in the story and it's always very sad and like It's never downplayed as like, oh, you know, it's just, we didn't know that guy, it's fine, or whatever. But like, he's a writer who's really good at handling character death in a way that feels impactful and rough And also possible at all times, no matter how important the character is, which is pretty tough from a writing standpoint, because, you know, audiences are genre savvy enough to be like, oh, like, you'd really kill Percy. Come on. He's the narrator. You can't get rid of him.
1: Look, I'm never ruling anything out. In this case, I do know that Percy is in the sequel series and I know Annabeth is in the (laughs) sequel series as well. I knew that, like, going into it. I knew Percy Mm. and Annabeth were in the sequel series, but that's it. But otherwise, yeah, I wouldn't put it past Rick to have anybody die even early on, And it's something I've been saying. I want to read this, but I can't have anyone tell it to me. So I hope it just naturally occurs in my life. But I would love to read some sort of book series where the main character just dies like halfway through the second book. And you're like, what? What? (laughs) It would be very interesting. But obviously no one can suggest that to me so maybe one day i'll come across it
0: is that not what they did with game of thrones
1: i've not touched game of thrones not yet. Me either so, so. <laughs> all right no touching we're good <laughs> my understanding of game of thrones is just everybody dies all the time like it's just no one is safe
0: that was like the hot thing in the mid-2000s like try getting invested in this one nerds anyone can die it's like all right cool i think i'm gonna watch something that doesn't do that uh you guys have fun <laughs>
1: Compe pounds against the door, but quote, we didn't stick around to play knock-knock with her, though. We raced into the darkness, and for the first time and the last, I was glad to be back in the labyrinth, according to narrator Percy. So it's getting intense. That's the end of chapter seven. Before we get into chapter eight, we'll take our little mid-roll break in the podcast, which we like to call the Ad Roll of the Labyrinth. Woo! <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Admiral of the Labyrinth, New York City edition. After months of not New York City editions, we're back and I'm here with some fun announcements for the show. First, this coming Saturday, January 28th, Stephen Para and I are doing another Hades the Video Game stream for patrons. If you join the Patreon at thenewsolympian.com slash Patreon at any tier, you can watch this stream where Stephen and I are going to be playing for like three hours or so. And I'm going to see if I can beat the game last time I came free frustratingly close to beating the game, and I'm going to try to do it again, but we'll just see as much Hades as we can get in. Johnny might come through as well, so a bunch of fun stuff happening. It'll be silly. It'll be goofy. This Saturday, January 28th at 4 p.m. Eastern time, we will be doing the stream. You will get access to a replay if you are on the Patreon, so if that time doesn't work out for your time zone, don't worry about it. You can watch a full replay. And again, any tier of the Patreon gets access to this, and if you join the Patreon, you'll get access to a whole bunch of other stuff. Bonus episodes, director's commentary, live streams that we do every month, Q&A stuff, lots of fun stuff there at thenewsolympian.com Patreon. Speaking of fun stuff, I've been talking about the San Diego show. I've been talking about the San Francisco show. I've been talking about the potential LA show, which I'm now happy to say is definite. Tickets aren't live quite yet, but I just wanted to let you know so you can mark your calendars. We're doing a double feature show on February 21st. The venue has an eight o'clock slot and a 10 o'clock slot open, and it's a bit of a smaller venue, only 75 seats. So I'm doing a double bill show where the eight o'clock show will be the New Olympian and the 10 o'clock show will be Potterless. You can get tickets to one. You can get a discount if you get tickets to both. Both. So tickets to that will eventually be live at thenewslombia.com/live. Potentially by the time you're listening to this, so you can check it out. The best way to know if they're live, follow us on social media at News Olympian on Twitter or Instagram. Once those tickets are live, I will post about it. But for sure, the San Diego show on the twentieth of February and the San Francisco show on the twenty-third of February are in the position where you can get tickets. People have already been getting tickets. I'm really excited for those shows, and those are live at thenewslombia.com/live. Also, I mentioned the Patreon earlier. I want to give a shout out to the folks who have most recently joined our team over at thenewslombia.com/patreon. So shout out to your newest God Tier patrons, Carlos, Emmy Miranda, Sebastian Sawyer, and Owen Wartz. Shout out to your newest demigod God Tier patrons, Julia Noski and Archer Ma. And a happy birthday shout out to Rachel Barlow. Also, in the spirit of name corrections, I want to do a word correction for last episode. The correct pronunciation of a word I was trying to say, and I hope I'm saying it right this time, based on their <laughs> instructions, is Maori. I think I was saying like Maori, and that's not right. So, apologies for when I was referring to New Zealand, not saying Maori. And hopefully I'm saying it more correct now. Let me know if I'm not. Also, from a scheduling perspective, we will be taking off next Monday because January is a five Monday month. But don't worry, because there will be lots of content that week. There will be an episode of Potterless coming out, and there will also be a new episode of Meddling Adults. What's Meddling Adults, you ask? Well, I am happy to tell you about it, because if you're all caught up on the News Olympian and you are looking for a new podcast to get into, there is no better time than to start listening to one of my other shows that I make called Meddling Adults, because season 4A is about to premiere on the first Wednesday in February. That's February 1st. Meddling Adults is A podcast game show for charity where I serve as the host and guests compete to solve children's mysteries for charity, whether that's Scooby-Doo or Encyclopedia Brown or some new mysteries we're introducing into season four. I recap the mysteries. My guests try to solve them. They get points if they are correct or if they give very funny answers and whoever has the most points at the end earns money for a charity of their choosing. It's fun, it's wholesome, and it's available for you to listen to right now at meddlingadults.com or by searching meddling adults wherever you listen to your podcasts. And before we wrap up here, you're going to hear words from a few sponsors who make it feasible for me to be a full-time podcaster. Some of these ads will be read by me. Others of them won't. The ones that are not read by me are inserted locally. So if you live in New York City, don't be surprised if you hear an ad for the MTA, because gosh, it feels so good to be in a city with good public transit. I've missed it so dearly. And I would actually quite enjoy if the MTA sponsored the show. Maybe they could give me a little bit of discount, huh? MTA, hit me up. Anyway, once those ads are complete, we'll get back to this episode of The News Olympian. And we're back, and we're here to discuss as much of Chapter 8 as we can get to before we hit about an hour-ish of recording, so let's go!
0: Let's go! This chapter
1: is called We Visit the Demon Dude Ranch, and of (laughs) course I'm trying to guess what happens here. My guess is that they will go to this titular Demon Dude Ranch. I would guess that it is a place where they have monsters, but they're not necessarily fighting them, just because ranch gives me the sense of they are somehow contained and it made me think back to the boxes from earlier which we haven't been confirmed but i'm guessing contained the giant scorpions Mm. but i thought those said that they were from a different ranch like i don't know why the name triple g ranch is coming to mind instead of demon dude ranch but i guess it could be that demon dude ranch is a nickname for whatever triple g ranch is so my guess is that this is going to be the triple g ranch but I do not know. And we'll just have to see.
0: Demon Dude is interesting because that does feel like a Percyism, but it's not completely out of the realm of possibility that there's a place just called Demon Dude Ranch.
1: (laughs) Right. Because Dude Ranch is a thing. I am not Southern enough to understand the difference between a ranch and a dude ranch and even what it means or even what qualifies a ranch versus just a big place with fences. But at least dude is a term that could be with ranch. But also, you're right. It could just be a teenager saying that it is the ranch where demon dudes are. So it could be the demon dude ranch or the demon dude ranch.
0: I didn't know that dude ranch was a thing.
1: It is a thing. I'm just going to quick Google because that's not going to have spoilers. What is a dude ranch? Okay, according to Dictionary.com, Dude Ranch in the Western United States, in parentheses, <laughs> a cattle ranch converted to a vacation resort for tourists. Huh. Oh, it's also known as a guest ranch. I did not know that at all. So That's wild. So I guess you start as a ranch, and then if you get gentrified, you become a dude
0: ranch. <laughs> it's like a Pokemon evolution. Oh,
1: no. Yeah. what What is the stone that gentrifies you? Is it like a... Uh, uh, like, it's money. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> Fat stacks of cash. Oh,
0: Slap that on your Eevee and they turn it into something completely insufferable.
1: Oh, it could be like a credit card and you do the mm. tap to pay. Or you swipe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, let's get on to more fun things, such as Percy Jackson and the Olympians. So chapter eight begins. The team is now in a room that is just a big pit with a bunch of waterfalls, and they stop. Briari says that the pit goes straight to Tartarus, and it would be best if he just jumped down and saved the group of the trouble. And at this point, I get it. He's (laughs) been through a lot, and he's sad, but... I'm kind of tired of him. And if he doesn't come through and save someone's life, I will be furious because he's just being such a Debbie Downer. And he's already been encouraged by basically everyone on the team. They're really trying to hype him up. It's like, come on, guy. Let's go. Let's Mm. do this. But I get it. He's been through literally thousands of years of trauma. So it's going to take more than just a couple of quick pep talks. But still, I was a little. Yeah, he's dragging down the team a little bit. (laughs)
0: It's like, the gang can't keep babysitting this guy. Like, if he's not going to pull his weight, cut him loose.
1: Yep, and uh, it's not going to be very long before that happens. So Annabeth tries to cheer him up. She says that he can come to Camp Half-Blood with them to help them fight the evil, since he has the most titan-fighting experience out of anyone. And Briari says that he has nothing to offer. And Tyson asks, what about your brothers? Briari says, they are no more. Quote, they faded. Tyson is then brought to tears and Percy, ever looking for clarification with weird turns of <laughs> phrase, asks, what do you mean they faded with they faded in italics?
0: <laughs>
1: Percy thought that they would be immortal like the gods. Grover says that even immortality has its limits, which makes me think that it should have a new name, and that sometimes monsters get forgotten and they lose their will to stay immortal, which made me think of the iconic line from The Sandlot, heroes get remembered, legends never die. Oh yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> (laughs) Percy can tell that Grover is sad and he wonders, does Grover have Pan in mind, which also then made me sad. I didn't think about this. Mm. Percy also thinks back to things that Medusa and Apollo said earlier in the series. Similarly, if someone gets forgotten, it can kind of fade away.
0: Which is fun because this is clearly weird and kind of just drawing on the fact that like a lot of these guys, we have like two references for total. Mm -hmm. Even beyond that, you know, in, in pop culture, like Medusa being like, you know, I had two sisters, but they're gone now. It's like, yeah medusa was the one that everybody knows about you know her two sisters people forget even though her two sisters were the ones that were supposedly immortal i believe she was the only one that was the thing is the the gorgons are in a weird space where it's like there was a telling like this and then they they messed with it and there was something else and ovid had like a political agenda and added stuff that nobody else had and all that jazz yeah the idea that medusa was a human woman that was transformed by a curse from the gods seems to have been an ovid original earlier it was just they were three immortal monster sisters and... Also, in some face painting versions, it looks maybe more like instead of having snakes for hair, they just had like weird jug head things. It's a weird, weird setup.
1: Oh, that would make sense of why Dusa in Hades the video game looks the way she does.
0: Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Uh, honestly, the the people who make the Hades video games is like, you guys know stuff that I've never even heard of. <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> but uh, I like that Reardon's approach towards uh, the gods and mythology is like, you know, they sort of do the same things they did in the old myths, but there's a twist of how much they're believed in and how much they're known. So, like, Chiron, the immortal teacher, like, everybody knows Chiron. You know, he keeps showing up. It's fine. You know, the Hecatoncheires. it's like, yeah, the other two had names, but, you know, who cared about them? It was all Briaris. Even <laughs> the gods liked Briaris more than the other two. Like... And he's barely remembered, you know, if if you, all you do is in the Titanomachy, you're not going to be in the main corpus of Greek mythology. So I kind of like this approach of like, look, if a monster is so old that nobody remembers it, it's not going to exist anymore. Like, mm-hmm. it's just going to go away. It's, it's cleanup. It's efficient. It's recycling.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, and we're back to Captain Planet. Huzzah, yeah. we've done it full circle. Narrator Percy says, I never thought about it too much, but now looking at Briaris, I realized how terrible it would be to be so old thousands and thousands of years old and totally alone. And I feel like the Percy Jackson series is a great case against anyone ever wanting immortality. It Mm -hmm, sounds mm -hmm. miserable. I don't want it. I don't wish it upon anyone.
0: Yeah, even the gods don't seem too happy with it. No. (laughs) Just like... Oh, we're miserable and we can't do anything fun except meddle with our kids' lives. Boo-hoo. <laughs>
1: it's a mess. Briari says that he must go. Tyson says they need his help. Briari says he cannot help. Tyson says that he is strong. Briari says not anymore. So Percy grabs one of his arms and takes him aside. He basically goes, look, we need you. Tyson has risked his life for you. And then he tells him everything that's going on with the Kronos and Luke of it all, hoping that that will inspire him to want to stay and fight. But Briari's shakes his head and says he cannot help. For he does not have a finger gun in this game. And Aww. then he makes a hundred finger guns, which is pretty funny. Yeah. And then narrator Percy tries to give him a little bit of tough love reverse psychology by saying, maybe it's not about what the mortals believe. Maybe it's because you in italics give up on yourself. Oh. <laughs> really trying to neg him into staying. Briaris' face morphs into shame and he dejectedly walks down the corridor until he is gone, which makes me think, okay, he's going to come back at a very dramatic moment at full size. <laughs> this is fine. Now we don't have to deal with him moping about and he can come back with his hundred arms being quite larger and he, you know, does a hundred fist punch on some evil monster that they come across later in the series. Yeah,
0: it's, it's a pretty soft read, but it's like, oh, this character with limitless potential that we've seen absolutely none of just doesn't believe in himself hard enough. <laughs> so he leaves, he walks out of the plot and it's like, all right, so now the writer has that in the back pocket for <laughs> whenever he wants a heroic rescue to show up. And that's fun. One thing I like about the Jackson series is that there are always so many Chekhov's guns in play that you can never actually guess what's going to be the thing that solves it. (laughs) So you can never actually guess which one is going to go off when. It's really interesting. Reardon does a lot of stuff to sort of break up the sort of tropey monotony that could very easily afflict a story this dependent on old patterns of storytelling. I mean, for crying Mm -hmm. out loud, a lot of these things are just taken word for word almost from, you know, Apollodorus and, and the Theogony and Ovid's Metamorphoses and stuff like that. And it's just like the fact that you can still remix this and keep me guessing is really impressive and just like a technical level.
1: Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. It's yeah. truly good stuff. I feel like if I was reading these books and I wanted to do a really solid job of guessing what was going to happen, I should have a whiteboard or a cork board with <laughs> the all string, the things yeah. that have been unresolved so that I can keep looking up and be like, oh, right. Which is
0: also interesting because like the all these books start with a prophecy that tells you exactly what's going to happen in them. <laughs> and and we're stupid. Uh, but it kept just guessing is
1: rhyming and cute and cryptic and bleh.
0: Cute is a strong word for it, because almost yeah. every one of them is like, the one you love most will die horribly, and everyone you love is gonna think that you're a jerk, and they're like, Well, that could mean a lot of things. <laughs>
1: yeah, I stand corrected. Maybe the prophecies themselves aren't cute, but the fact that they have to rhyme is just a cute <laughs> necessity of Whimsical. Them. There it is. Grover pats Tyson on the shoulder and says, It's okay. And Percy recognizes how tough that must have been because Grover as of this book, is terrified of Tyson. So that took a lot of bravery for him to pat him on the shoulder and give him words of encouragement. Yeah. Tyson replies, it's not okay, goat boy. He was my hero. And uh, Tyson just always knows how to tug on the heartstrings, whether he is being awe, tears of joy, or aw tears of sad. He's really good at it. He's quite powerful.
0: Tyson is very sweet and very genuine. And it feels like everything that he feels, he feels very openly and honestly. Yes, and again, yes. like it would be easy to sort of write him as a stock trope of like, oh, he's simple. And instead, it's like, no, he, he doesn't have the most advanced vocabulary, but he's clearly a person who feels very strongly about a lot of stuff. And it's it's not even like, oh, we have to protect Tyson. It's like Tyson can mostly protect himself. Tyson can fist fight mm-hmm. a truck and win. But like, you know, <laughs> emotionally, he's just a big old softy. And we, we want, Mm -hmm. to protect him from the hard things in life that he can't just punch. Right,
1: right. I really like Tyson. I think he's a good complex character where you can take what he could represent in a lot of different ways. And I think that that's nice, as I think you could see yourself in Tyson for many different angles. So, mm. it's really nice. Yeah. So, Narrative Percy says, I wanted to make him feel better, but I wasn't sure what to say. And that is the most on-brand thing that I could <laughs> relate to ever. This is me every time someone has some sort of problem, it's like, I know that things are bad now and <laughs> you are sad. I want to say the right thing, but I do not know what to say. Would you like a hug?
0: (laughs) I acknowledge that you're feeling bad. This makes me feel bad. Uh, Please stop. (laughs) I don't know how to fix this.
1: I'm trying my best. Annabeth calls for them to leave the pit and find somewhere else to camp for the night. So they find a corridor with large marble blocks and bronze torch holders, and it looks like it is a part of a Greek tomb. Percy and Annabeth think that this must be an older part of the maze, so Annabeth is thinking, great, this is ideal. We're looking for the oldest part of the labyrinth. She says that they must be close, and she encourages everyone to rest up and get ready to roll in the morning. Tyson, very astutely, asks, how will we know it's the morning? And Annabeth instructs him, just rest. (laughs) Narrative Percy says, Grover didn't need to be told twice. He pulled a heap of straw out of his pack, ate some of it, made a pillow out of the rest, and was snoring in no time. I love this. I'm a very, I can go to sleep right away type of boy, so (laughs) I appreciate Grover being like this as well.
0: I love this sort of like just camping out in the backpack vibe because it's ideal. It's my favorite. Way to travel is mm-hmm. like, you know, if it can't go in the backpack, it's not coming. <laughs>
1: They're just roughing it.
0: Also, I like how much focus is put on, like, the technicalities. Like, you know, they got to eat. They got to sleep. You know, how are they feeling? Let's check in. Because, again, it helps us stay immersed in the characters and how they're vibing. It's easier to relate to what they're going through if it feels like we're kind of along for the whole ride. Yeah,
1: it's the opposite of 24, where Jack Bauer never eats, poops, or charges his phone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Or sleeps, I assume.
1: Nothing. Literally nothing. Tyson frustratingly tinkers with some metal instead of sleeping, Percy apologizes to him for losing the shield. Tyson tells him not to worry and that Percy wouldn't have been in that position if Briaris would have actually just helped them. Percy tells Tyson that he thinks Briaris was just scared and believes that he will eventually get over it, of course, when he comes back to triumphantly yeah, save with the, the day. With the big
0: hundred hand punch, yeah. <laughs> of course, the hundred yeah. hand punch. Yeah.
1: Tyson says that Briaris is neither strong nor important anymore and he lets out a big sigh and goes to sleep. Ah, uh, I don't like Crush Tyson. I would love for to come back and for them to fight hand in hands (laughs) and be together and you know and he can restore his faith in his hero percy can't sleep he is still wired from the whole campe situation so he goes over to annabeth who's keeping watch she tells percy that he should be sleeping and he says that he can't he asks her how she's doing and she sarcastically says that day one of the quest was a huge success (laughs) percy assures her that they will find the way and they will find the workshop before luke does She's frustrated that the quest isn't logical, pointing out that they managed to walk from New York to California in a day, and she says it's extremely frustrating to her specifically because she did loads of planning and research, and it's basically worthless because they don't know where they are, they don't know how this works, so it's understandably frustrating in general but specifically for annabeth i totally get it
0: i like annabeth's worldview because the thing that i think reared and handled really well is that like yeah you know percy has add and you know he struggles with a lot of stuff but also every other demigod does too and the Mm -hmm, way that mm -hmm. it manifests with percy and annabeth is so different while still all being under the umbrella of like Annabeth likes it when the world has rules and it frustrates her when things don't work that way. Percy has a very different form of it where it's like he's really good at on-the-fly street smart stuff, Mm -hmm. but he cannot focus long enough to make the plans and figure out what the rules are. It's really solid character writing that these two are quite similar just in the underpinning like neurology of how they work, but at the same time, the way that it manifests is so opposed and turns them into such good character foils.
1: Yeah, it's nice and it's really good to see people approach the same situation differently and it's also just outside of that from them working together as a team or as a potential future relationship depending on how things go it's good to see them be not exactly the same but be able to work together well and know each other's strengths and weaknesses and be aware of it and you even see Percy talking about that with things like they know each other's fighting style so well Mm -hmm. that they can work together really well but also from their approach to planning slash not planning in Percy's case (laughs) they can work together on the quest and in life yeah and now we get adorable reassuring friend mode for Percy where we get this back and forth Percy says you're doing great besides we never know what we're doing never in italics it always works out remember Cersei's Island Annabeth snorts and then says you made a cute guinea pig and then Percy says and Waterland how you got us thrown off that ride I got us thrown off that was totally your fault and then Percy goes see it'll be fine
0: so cute <laughs> it's so cute they're so cute it's so cute <laughs>
1: So adorable. Annabeth smiles, which is great, but unfortunately, it quickly fades. Less great, but at least it was there. There was a smile, so that's good. Annabeth asks Percy what Hera meant about him knowing the way to get through the maze, and he reiterates that he has absolutely no clue what Hera was talking about.
0: (laughs) Oh, thanks, Hera.
1: Now, here's an interesting thing that happens. Annabeth checks basically saying, uh, you know, you would tell me if you knew, right? And he says, maybe. And I was thinking, maybe. And Annabeth goes, maybe what? And then he says that he will tell her if she tells him the final line of the prophecy. And at first I thought this was him being nefarious with the whole, you know, you tell me, I'll tell you kind of thing. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But maybe it is him genuinely thinking the last line of the prophecy might help me understand what Hera was alluding to. Also, it could be a little bit of both.
0: Yeah, also I mean, he could just be being a bit of a little, you know, (laughs) bit of a little jerk. A little cheeky. Yeah, a little cheeky, (laughs) a little teasing. I think the thing is, like, he genuinely doesn't know But it's like, well, if Harris says I know, then I probably do know. I just don't know I know. So I'd tell you maybe, depending on what it is. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) If I knew, we'd be having a different conversation. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Annabeth says that she won't tell him here because it's in the dark, which I don't know why that is a factor, but I'm intrigued to see what this last line becomes.
0: I think the vibe is just that she's creeped out and doesn't want to think about it. And, you know, not here, not in the dark is like, yeah, I wouldn't want to have this conversation, too.
1: I got it. I got it. Percy tries to press about the choice that Hera alluded to earlier with Jonas and all that, but Annabus stops him saying that she's just too stressed to talk about it right now, which unfortunately reaffirms my suspicions of, is she going to have to choose between someone's life? Because that's not fun and that wouldn't be great. So they sit in the darkness for a bit, and that causes Percy to think about Nico, which then allows him to have a eureka moment where Percy realizes that Nico is in the labyrinth, which I found very intriguing. Yeah. Percy explains that makes sense as to why Nico disappeared from camp, he must have found an entrance to the labyrinth. And it does make perfect sense, so much so that I'm upset that I didn't think about this first. (laughs) Hats off to Percy. He believes that Nico has found a path all the way down to the underworld because the first Iris message collect call came from seemingly the underworld. But then Percy thinks that Nico has made his way back up into the maze because he's looking for Percy. This is the second time Percy has said this. And it feels a little bit Percy-centric of him to be like, oh, well, clearly Nico must be (laughs) after me. Where I don't know if that's it. He could have a Percy revenge arc, but I also could very much see a world in which Nico is in the maze for a completely different reason. We've heard the ghost talk about the maze similarly to the whole Clarice getting through the maze and leveling up. So maybe that is what it is because they said if he gets through it, then he might have the power to bring her back. So I think that could be it as opposed to just going to hunt Percy Jackson. But Percy's being a little bit main character-y to be like, clearly I'm the main character of everyone's story.
0: (laughs) I will say, I think it actually makes sense for Percy to have this sort of blind spot for what else Nico could be doing, because Percy clearly feels responsible for the death Mm. of Bianca. So it's like, whether or not, yeah, I mean, the thing is like, Nico blames Percy, Percy also blames Percy. So it makes (laughs) sense for Percy to be like, if I was in Nico's shoes, I'd want me dead too. Like, I get it. I totally get it. But the thing is like, He's not necessarily processing that maybe Nico has, like, a a different perspective or a bigger picture thing or, like, cares less about revenge and more about something else. You know, Mm -hmm. it's hard to say. And the last time he saw Nico, Nico was not in a good place. So, you know.
1: Right. And it could very much be a situation where Nico's main goal is to get the power so that he can bring Bianca back. However, he wouldn't be opposed to killing Percy Jackson along the way. (laughs) It would be a nice little side quest.
0: Twist my arm, why don't you? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Vengeance? Yeah, I mean, if you insist.
1: (laughs) Oh, I guess So. So Annabeth says that she hopes Percy's wrong. And then she starts to say, but if you're right, but then Mm. she sort of trails off while staring at the flashlight shining against the wall. Because of course, this is only chapter eight. We can't have a big plot reveal yet. We're not (laughs) past the halfway point. Yeah. Percy notes that she looks tired. So he offers to take the first watch so that she can go to sleep. And Annabeth looks like she's going to protest, but then she accepts Percy's offer and goes to sleep. And when it becomes Percy's turn to go to sleep instead of staying awake and keeping watch, Of course, he has a dream, and that is where we will end this episode of The Newest Olympian. Before we get into the very not fun dream that I'm sad, I know the Greek story behind. Oh, man,
0: this is such a fun thing. Uh, Honestly... Whatever guest you have when you talk about the rest of his dreams about this guy and uh, the situation, uh, I hope they have fun because (laughs) I found some really fun stuff about the mythology behind it, but I don't want to spoil. If you
1: have stuff already written down, feel free to send me an email with it and then we can do, Red is not here this time, but.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's fun. Yeah, I like that idea.
1: And then we can make sure those things get touched on.
0: I gotta say, just plot wise, I love that it's just like, hey, demigod dreams can be almost anything. It's like, are you having visions of the past? Are you getting talked to by a god? Are you actually having just a regular dream? Who knows?
1: (laughs) Yep. Who's to say anything is on the table? Well, this was super fun. Red, thank you so much for joining. This was a blast to have you on. We'll have to have you back on in the future, maybe specifically for the heroes of Olympus so you can, you know, (laughs) clarify your stance for the people and and all
0: of that. (laughs) Finally saw this thousand year blood war.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But if people want to find you elsewhere on the Internet, anywhere that you're making content, where can the folks find you?
0: Right. Well, obviously, the, the main thing is the YouTube channel, Overly Sarcastic Productions. If you look that up, you'll find our stuff. I am one half of the channel. My other half uh, the channel, Blue, does uh, history videos and stuff like that. But sometimes we sort of he'll do a video about like a Greek writer and I'll do a video about something that Greek writer did, which is a lot of fun. We also have a Twitter for now uh, <laughs> at OSP YouTube where uh, mostly it's just me posting fun things. And sometimes I do bad movie nights where I live tweet along with it. I should do more of those now, actually.
1: Hey, you could do the Percy Jackson movies from uh, my understanding. I've already <laughs> done
0: both of those as live tweets and I don't want to <laughs> revisit them. They're so bad. But uh, yeah, that's the main thing. I also, I I have a webcomic I do on the side. Uh, it's not related to the channel. It's just fun, uh, which is at Comic Aurora. If you look that up, you'll find it. It's fine. Anyway, um, that's the main stuff that's basically it so
1: great well i hope folks check those out thank you again so much for coming on we'll have you back in the future but <laughs> until we see what's going on with percy here in the tunnel in the labyrinth and also in this dream we're about to see until we see what's going on i'll see you later <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: boy it's a good one it's a good one and that's a good one all
1: right <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The News Olympian. This podcast is created, hosted and produced by me, Mike Schuber. I also run the social media and the website. Our editor is Sherry Guo. The music is by Bettina Campomanos and Brandon Google and the art is by Jessica E. Boyd. If you love the show, you're all caught up on the show and you just can't get enough, you should check out our Patreon where you can get access to loads of bonus content, bonus episodes, bloopers, director's commentary, monthly Q&A live streams, all sorts of good stuff lives at thenewsolympian.com Patreon. And if you want to rep the show, you can get some merch at thenewsolympian.com merch. If you want to be part of a our Community, you can join the Patreon, and get access to our Discord, but you can also check us out on social media or at News Olympian on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We have a subreddit, reddit.com R slash The News Olympian. We even have a TikTok account that Sherry runs. It's at News Olympian. Lots of good stuff on social media. This show wouldn't be possible without our patrons, and I want to give a shout out to our ultra god tier patrons, Lada Bartova, Kelsey Gillespie, the Damn Steam Nuggets, Vicky Garcia, Ellie Haskov Veronica Bartova, Haley Hastings, Robin Garcia, Frida Vickstrom, Megan Moon, Olivia Y, Craig McRoberts, Taylor Payne, Giselle Salvador, Peter Johnson, the twins, Sabrina Balsinger, Bony Pony, Heather McMillan, King. Williams, Polly Burge, Nikki Harris, Tatiana Schmidt, Sandra Rose, Bridget Lowry, Josh Sayer, Josh Wilkie, Abby Ryan, Wise Girl, Ashton Gabrielson, Marco, Redhouse, Falcon, Joey James, Christopher William Boucher, Caden Max, Sam Sam Ruby, Carly Allen, Riley Kitas, Mary Kelly, Audra, McKenzie, Mrs. O'Leary, Aaron Wood, Rodith Kalna, Milo Kim, Fred Cabras, Harlan Christ, C.C. Reeds23, Sand Kauf, Julia Kendall, Emil Oscar Thomason, Liz Cardigan, Michelle Spurgeon, Zachary Hamilton, Sarah Neal, Ricky, Francesca Pacheco, John Dreelsma, and Demi God Nurse. If you want to help out the show in a non-monetary way, tell a friend about the show that really helps a ton. Reach out to someone directly and say, hey, you love Percy Jackson, or hey, you've been looking for an excuse to read Percy Jackson. There's this podcast. It's very good. The host is very humble. You could also talk about us on social media or leave us a rating and review on whatever podcast app you're using. All these things help, and I really appreciate all of you who have done that or will do it in the future. But I'm just so thankful that you tuned into this episode, and I hope you tuned into our next episode where we will be joined by a literal Olympian, Olympic bronze medal winning figure skater, Brady Tonnell, as we finish up chapter eight and get into a good chunk of chapter nine. But until then... I'll pursue you later. Hey everyone, how's it going? It's me, ASMR Mac. So for this ASMR Mac segment, I am going to search through the voice memos on my phone and see if I've got something else from the Australia and New Zealand vault. I believe that I do. I'm not sure what's left, but I've got something. So here it is. Is that all just that one bird? Yeah. Wow. Thank you for listening. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition.